0: We are two weeks into a new series um, called the Letter to the Church in Orncrest, and so we're we're as we're looking in, at this we're talking about some really really critical issues um, related to um, how we come to know God's uh, desire for the church and having a little issue with my stuff up here so I'm gonna work on this for a second I don't know if I lost power or something but um, when I was in my senior year in college i don 't know if somebody could help me out with this i could I could use the help on just seeing what 's going on with this, but when I was in my senior year in college, I was a part of an internship program, and I became an intern at a church um, which I had hoped to work for for i don 't know any number of years and so, as I went about doing that, um, I was really impressed initially by what was being offered in this church. Um, it was a large church. It's all right, guys. No big deal. Yeah. Um, thank you, Cody, Stefan. But one of the things I noticed initially was this church was just massive. And I was really attracted to that because as a student going into uh, ministry, um, in my mind it made sense to find the largest kind of church to, to intern at, to get experience at. So I went to this church and I was interning there. And, uh, again, it was just impressive. It had over a 1,000 people. had lots of property and buildings and just lots of space, room to grow. The youth building alone was bigger than this gathering uh, right here. And it was, you know, it had its own, like, worship auditorium. There was arcade games around the perimeter, ping pong pool, vending machines, snack bar. I was just really impressed by the whole thing. And why wouldn't I want to work there, you know? It was just, it was a great, it seemed like a great opportunity. They would put on these amazing events and they'd bring in these very, very well-known speakers. I got to meet Kirk Cameron. Now, I wasn't a huge Kirk Cameron fan, but gotta admit, it was kinda, it was kinda cool to, to, to meet Kirk Cameron. Really nice guy. Got to meet Oliver North. And got to, I get to like, I got to shuttle people, like famous bands, back and forth from the airport to our church for big events and stuff. And I was just like, man, this is, how could this get any better? This whole thing was just so impressive. And it, it really was on the outside, it just looked good. But it took me about nine months to realize that on the inside of the church, the church was right on the verge of a major scandal. Things were just about to unravel. We kind of saw the handwriting on the wall, and I resigned just before graduating my, uh, my senior year, and then scandals broke out, things fell apart. We can be very, very impressed by the appearances of anything from the outside, or even walking into the inside. Sometimes the appearance of what's going on on the inside can be very, very impressive, I want to show you some pictures. Um, you know, here's a here's a picture of a, just this massive crowd, just a massive crowd. This is a church. There's churches much bigger than this. There's churches in, in Seoul, Korea. There's churches in Africa. They're just you know thousands and thousands of people, just mega mega churches. Here's another collage of pictures from some major, impressive churches. They look really good from the outside. There's actually a really unique one. I've never seen that one. There's actually this massive statue of Jesus. I'm, I think at the front of the church. And, uh, you know, just these really impressive architecture. And then here's another picture. You might recognize this one. Hey, that's us. That's us. That's a picture of the Orange Terrace Community Center. Just this beautiful facility. I remember walking around this park. And then one day, before this building was built, seeing the sign and the construction plans for what Riverside was planning to do with this. And I remember praying, God, we'd love to use that place for... Uh, for our church eventually. Got on a waiting list, and we've been able to... But you know the truth is, it's an impressive building. It's an impressive church facility, even though it's a city facility. We, this is our church. You know, we, we rent this from the city. But the truth is, looks can be deceiving, can't they? In fact, it is possible, and this is in your outline as we get rolling into the outline, it's possible that a church may appear really impressive, but face discipline or even termination. This is what we've been looking at last couple of week or last week as well. Last week we began a series looking at some core issues that every church really must stay after: fruitfulness and faithfulness. We're looking in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and we're going to spend a few weeks looking at chapter two and chapter three, and also we're going to kind of drop back to some of the issues that you find in chapter two and three and look into what the New Testament says is necessary for a church to last for generations. So there's not just an impressive thing going on on the outside, but that inside the outside really match. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3 is uh, a part of you know, the book of Revelation. And we're studying these letters written to the seven churches in, in Asia Minor. And these were all churches that existed in John the Apostles' day. God used God, John, one of Jesus' followers, was exiled onto an island, the island of Patmos. While he was there, he was seen... Uh, he was given a vision, and in the vision, he was what was revealed to him was things were made visible about what would happen down, down the road in the future. And so he wrote those things down as he was instructed. And in Revelation 2 and 3, we find the letters to the churches of Revelation. And so he gets this vision of what's going to come down, and there's some evaluations going on about the state of these seven different churches. He's saying... Christ was walking amongst His churches, and He's giving them a grade. Some of them were on track, and some of them really weren't. And what these letters do for us is they bring up issues that we must pay attention to today. We have to really focus in on what it is God is saying to those churches, because for us, these things still matter. We need to pay attention to all of the letters, even though these were written specifically to these existing churches. And I, and I like I said, I was kind of asking a question... As I've been preparing for this, if we received a letter, what would it say? Letter to the Church of Orange Crest. That's why we named this series. Out. What would our church say? Or what would our letter say? What would he be evaluating? What would he grade after he spent some time with us in our relationships, saw how we did life, saw how we did our church life? There's this interesting line that comes up at the end of each of these seven letters. And it says this. It says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's this judgment in that, again, this is verse 7 of Revelation 2. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What that line emphasizes is is that this is for everyone. All churches are to pay attention. Every single church needs to hear every single letter. Partly as a warning to what to avoid and also to know what to go after because there's some things that these churches were commended for and we want to focus on those things. They're warned for some things that we want to steer clear of. And so first, Jesus deals with this church in a place called Ephesus, which was really the most prominent of all of the seven churches. It was kind of like the mother church of, of, of these six other churches that were founded because this was like a church planting hub where people eventually uh, grew churches out of. They would send teams out to start. And so the, the six other churches that are addressed really grew out of this church's ministry. And some things about the church... Um, this was initially planted by Paul, but he was what was called his missionary journeys. He had three missionary journeys where he was planting churches around the region. And on the, second, the end of the second journey, he stops in Ephesus. He leaves a couple leaders there. He stays there for a day. He does some work. He leaves two people, Priscilla and Aquila, and they set up, basically, they begin to spread the message of Jesus. And then Paul sets sail, goes back to a place called Antioch, and then later he comes back to Ephesus, and he spends three years there to build a new church, just start not build a building but build into the lives of people, to establish the Christian faith in this place called Ephesus and Some very dramatic and remarkable events surround how this church was birthed. When he goes back to Ephesus, he begins to speak in, in uh, he, he begins to gather some of the religious folks and speak to them about what the significance of Jesus Christ, and Paul, through God's power, he, be, he was able to perform some miraculous things among them. He healed some people, people miraculously. He delivered some people who were struggling with evil spirits. And all of that, what it did was it stirred up all sorts of curiosity among the people. Both the religious people and the non-religious people were just fascinated by what they saw Paul do. And there was a group of religious leaders, some Jewish exorcists, who tried to replicate what Paul did. They saw him cast spirits out of, out of people, and so they said, well, we can do this too. And so they tried to replicate what Paul was doing against the demon-possessed individual. And the Scripture says that the demon basically stripped them down and beat them and humiliated them. Acts 19, 15, and 16 actually says that the Spirit said to them, Jesus, I, because they tried to cast the Spirit out of this man... And the Spirit answered back to these Jewish exorcists and said, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then he proceeded to beat them up, strip them naked. They were humiliated, embarrassed. And at the sight of all this, seeing the power struggle, the supernatural power struggle, and seeing Paul relying on God's power, there was this major revival conversion experience for many, many people. And so people began to come to Christ and the, in, in Acts chapter 19, you read about all these people who were turning from their old ways of doing life. Many people were into like the magical arts. It was a very um, immoral place as well. But those who were into magical arts says they brought their books and they burned them. Saying, we're done with this. We're turning. There was like true repentance and conversion. They were burning up all their books from the past, from their magic books and scrolls. And the scripture says that it was worth what would be the equivalent to about 50,000 days' wages. So there's just widespread revival going on in Ephesus. The problem with that was that that began to create a major threat for uh, the economy there because the economy was built around some of the practices that these people had in the past. And so big old riot almost breaks out and things get actually settled down. Things don't go too haywire and the church is able to sprout up. But there's just this, this real dramatic birth of the Ephesian church. And something about the city. I want to tell you about some about the church, some about the city before we look at the letter. So it helps us understand it better. Here's a picture of uh, the Asia Minor. You see Asia Minor. That's what we know as Turkey now. And you see Ephesus kind of near the middle. And Ephesus was the most, really the most important city in Asia Minor. About half a million people lived there. This was a major trade harbor for the region, and they had this theater and I want to show you a picture of this theater. Look at the size of this thing. This is a theater twenty five thousand people could go there to attend and this theater actually shows up in the scripture where this riot nearly breaks out, and they um, they, they haul off some Christians to, to kill them doesn't they don 't get killed they kind of everything settles down, but there 's just this massive theater there, and Ephesus was the mo, was most famous for um, having a temple at the center where they would worship the goddess Artemis and here is a picture of the the temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, just this beautiful temple a, you know you, we see we have pictures of this or uh, renderings of what this what this looked like, and as they excavate it you know they 're able to say this is what it what it looked like and here 's a picture of Artemis herself, the goddess she was this her idol was a just a kind of a gross, vile, many-breasted figure. And it was she was a very... Um, worship of her really revolved around sex. So there was thousands of priestesses who were little more than ritual prostitutes who would play a role in worship of Artemis. And the temple grounds was just flooded with priests and prostitutes and bankers and criminals and dancers and then hysterical worshipers of this pagan goddess. And so... Huddled in the middle of all of this chaos was this faithful group of Christians. This is what they were surrounded by. They're, they're huddled together, they're banding together, and this message of Christ is spreading. And it was to this group of people that the letter, of, the letter to the church of Ephesus was written. And he begins with a praise. So let's take a look. The church in Ephesus was commended for this. First, for working hard, even during times of difficulty and trouble. They were hard at work. They were not lazy. And Jesus Himself is praising them for their efforts. It starts with this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. From the first chapter of Revelation, He kind of reveals some of the symbols here. The seven stars are actually the same thing as these angels, which most people really believe what that means is that These stars represent the church leaders who led these different churches. So these letters, in fact, are written to instruct the leaders on how to direct their churches. The seven golden lampstands are a symbol for the churches themselves. So Jesus is identifying himself. He's saying, I'm the one that's writing this to you, these churches. Uh, Verse 2 says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. You have persevered. I'm sorry, in your perseverance. See, they were hard at work. They weren't just busy providing a church that was focused on entertainment. They were very, very down to business. They weren't spectators. They were getting after it. This wording here of hard work and their deeds being, you know, this has to do with sweat and toil and exhaustion. And the truth is, they were surrounded by this pagan culture. They did all of this work in the midst of a very, very dark place, and they had to stay after it. This is very true for churches today. The the world that we live in is not supportive of churches growing and helping people turn their lives to Jesus Christ. And so you have to stay after it. But they were praised for this. They worked hard. Verse 3 goes on, you have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. You know, early on when I said that riot broke out, they Face some trouble, they face some, some problems. That could have just shut them down. That could have caused them to go into fear and not want to move forward. But instead, what happened was they decided, let's keep pressing on. Let's bear up under the pressure of the world that we're, of the, of the city that we're planting in, that we're starting in, and let's, let's, let's band together and get this thing off the ground. He also praised them for this. The second thing is for remaining doctrinally sound. They stayed pure. In their beliefs. They they made sure that false teaching didn't seep through into the church. Verse two, the second part of verse two says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but they're not, and have found them false. You see, they were not lacking in what Scripture calls discernment. The ability to to test and to approve what is true and what's false, to call out the false, to approve what's true. They were they were not Afraid of doing that. They actually took very seriously some of the things that were instructed to them. Paul, at one point in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, he wrote them a letter prior to all of this and it said this. It said, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which God, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. And Paul said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw them away. So be on your guard. He's he's warning them. He's saying false teachers will will rise up in your midst. Be on your guard. And keep testing what they have to say. See, they would test the claims of people as they came into town who were so-called apostles. They would test them. They say, yeah, this lines up with the teaching of Jesus and the teachings of the the early disciples. If it didn't, they would reject those people as false teachers. This is extremely important. And false teachers pose a constant threat to all churches. Two thousand years ago, when these churches were being planted, false teachers still pose a major threat for, for us today. People can find their way into churches and begin to spread divisive heresy, which is false teaching. That, that fit their lifestyle but don't line up with the word of God and so Paul's, Paul or so what Jesus is saying hey I, I commend you you've not caved into some of that stuff they held on to the right doctrine this was really after 30 years of of being planted hey they're hanging in there they're doing well the third thing is they were commended for calling people to purity which was a huge struggle if you can imagine. Especially if you understand, like I was explaining, the immoral world, or the immoral city that they were living in. One of those, one of those uh, challenges on purity for them was a group, and you read about it in Revelation 2.6. It says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were followers of a man named Nicholas, who his followers really led people into teachings about immorality, or led people into a teaching that allowed them to practice immorality sexually and and just things that were really wicked. And these were seeping into the church, so it was drawing Christians towards the wrong things. What they did is they would take a doctrine known as kind of the doctrine of Christian liberty, which is the freedoms we have to exercise our own will and decisions in the gray areas. The areas where Scripture is silent or it's not conclusive, um, where it's kind, of, it's kind of fuzzy, could mean this, could mean that. They would, they would take their freedoms and they would exploit their freedoms so that they could sin, so that they could live a moral and so feel okay about it. And so the church actually, it says they hated the practice of the Nicolaitans. They actually called them out. And they called people to purity rather than immorality or self-indulgence. One church father actually wrote of the Nicolaitans, he said that they lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. They just, they didn't hold themselves back from things that they ought to. And a different church, one of the letters to a different church, says that they were actually, the Church of Pergamum was tolerant of this group. They were tolerant of the false teaching that led to impurity, which gave people a license to step out of bounds and to, to live sinful lifestyles. But the Ephesians, they were praised because they hated the practices of this group. They didn't hate the people, but they hated the practice and the things that they were promoting. And all of these three areas that they were being commended for, really for us, are things to pay attention to. We need to, we need to remember the things that they are commended for so that we can, we can ask the same questions about the way we do church life. How do we measure up? What would he say about us in these three areas? And overall, up to this point, this church really does seem on track. It seems very impressive, but here's the problem. You see this in your outline. But they were in danger of being shut down. Because over time, their love for the Lord had grown cold. Verses two or Chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, he says this. There's all all these good things, but yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. He's talking about termination. He's saying... I will shut down your church if you do not repent. And turn and pursue me with a wholehearted love like you did when you first came to me. They were serving well. They were protecting right doctrine. They were fulfilling their Christian duties. But, but their love for God was diminishing. And that was the big problem. Jesus said, I have this charge against you. We've kind of all heard the term, the honeymoon is over, right? You heard that before? You, know, you have this relationship. Things are great, vine flowers, you know, all this whining and dining going on. And then all of a sudden, the honeymoon's over, you know, McDonald's tonight, honey. And that's kind of what he's saying is that the relationship, the way that they pursued and they, they would seek to please Christ and his interests in the beginning was slowly fading. That was the charge against them. And the problem is the loss of a vital love relationship with the Lord Jesus, would later open the door for more serious problems and put this church out of business. And so he's saying, stop, repent, turn around. There was this cancer growing inside them. And so here's some things we need to pay attention to. First, as a church body, loving God is the issue here. Loving God is supreme. This is the most important thing. There is nothing more important than for us to love God with our whole heart. Look at what Jesus said when he was asked, Hey, what's the greatest commandment? He replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. If our efforts over time are not causing him uh, causing us to love him more deeply, then we're missing it. We're missing it. If you and I if we get caught up in just doing church but we fail to love him, then we're breaking the greatest commandment. Loving God also must be our highest priority. Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39. Look at the way that this relationship, our love for God ought, to, ought to, to stand so far above every other human relationship. Jesus speaks with these extreme words, not to say, let me read this and then I'll explain it. He says, anyone, Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he's saying, he's not contradicting the commandment to love or to honor your father and mother. He's not talking about don't love your children. What he's saying is that our love for him in comparison to all other earthly relationships should be so much greater. It should stand so much further above. He goes on in verse 38, says, And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life Will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, the real way to finding life, real life is found through living life God's way. It's through pursuing Him and His plan, His agenda, not just ours. Another thing about loving God is this loving God develops deeper convictions and it protects against greater problems, and therefore it must be monitored. Our love for Him must be monitored because if we let it go, it's the gateway for all sorts of problems. That's why, that's why He's giving the warning. There's still time. Turn around. Look at John 21, 15-19. Jesus calls into question in this passage Peter's love for Him. He says Jesus is having this talk with, with Peter. He's already been resurrected. Jesus already died and resurrected. Now He's meeting with His followers who are about to take the lead roles in the church. Taking the church and moving it on. And He's testing their love. And He comes to Peter and He says... It says, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And the word love there is, is a unique word. The Greek is agape. And, and it's, it's a principled love that looks to the best interests of another person. He's saying, do you love me more than yourself? Are you willing to love me and put my interests ahead of your own? Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. But he answers them with a different word. He doesn't say, yes, I agape you. I, I love you in that same way. He says, I love you like a brother, Jesus. He uses a different. He responds with a different word. And Jesus says again, well, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He asks him again, do you love me with this sacrificial love? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But again, he answers him with this. Brotherly type love. I love you like a brother, Jesus. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus actually lowers. He says, do you even love me like a brother? Because the next time, that third time, he's not talking about agape anymore. He uses the word Philos, which means brotherly love. He's saying, do you love me like a brother? Yes, I do. I love you like a brother. But he's testing the character, the quality of Peter's love. He was trying to see just how deep it was for him. Because Jesus knew that a shallow, immature love would not stand the challenges that Peter would face in the future. Look at where the verse continues. It goes, the the reason he was testing this with verse 18 is revealed, I tell you the truth, Peter. But when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead, lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This is really important to understand. He was testing Peter's love because he knew he was going to die for him. He knew he was going to have to suffer pain for jesus christ so he wanted to know are you sure are you sure you're ready for this and the problem isn't that we don't love god the problem is that we love other things more than god other things bump up in their value in our hearts and we still love god but we don't love him all the time as much as we love other things so we have to ask ourselves this question is there anything that right now is challenging our love for god and this again is something we have to monitor constantly because we have, we're a mixed bag. We've got some good stuff going on in our hearts and we've got some bad stuff going on in our hearts. And because of that, we have to keep monitoring our love for Him. Our love is revealed through our priorities. This is how we know what we love. Our time and our resources tell, a great, tell us a great deal about what we're wrapping our hearts around. And that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 6 24 he says no one can serve two masters either he will hate the one and love the other or he will Be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and money Later he says but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well This is true both. This is this is true of all of us personally in our devotion to christ You commit your life to follow him you pursue him with a whole heart But then we face a number of challenges or a number of choices and we get drawn away from our first love. Real quick, I wanted to show you this brief video clip. And uh, this is from the... It's really hard to find illustrations to that really parallel the types of imagery that you get in our relationship to God because our relationship to God is much different. It's, it's much greater. It ought to be much greater than even a romantic love that one might have for a spouse. But this is something that I think gives us kind of a real clear example of what is being challenged here. This is from a movie called A Christmas Carol, Scrooge and all of that. And Scrooge is visited by one of the spirits who takes him back to his past. And this whole purity of love issue is challenged. So take a look. Emily. Emily. I have something to say. It will only take a moment. And it is just this, you love nothing quite so much as gold, Ebenezer. So I've brought you some more, I think you'd be quite happy to have a back? Building a fortune takes patience. I thought you understood. You're the one who doesn't understand. I never wanted anything but your love. The two of you here, all day late into the night. Sooner or later, you'll work yourselves to death. I won't be here to see it. You've never been poor. You don't know what the world is like. Love cannot protect you from it, but money can. I'm doing this for you, Emily, to keep you secure, to keep us both secure. No, Ebenezer. Those locked boxes and ledgers. these late hours, You're doing this for you. Emily, no! I shall waste no more of your valuable time. Bless you, Ebenezer. Fool! Fool! There's still time! Go after her! Don't let her go. But you did let her go, and the years flew by. So, when when he's reminded of his past relationship to this, you know, to his fiance at that point, how he lost focus of his priorities and his love for her, he really wished he could go back. He looked back and he wished, man, he said, Fool, that was him talking to himself. Fool, go after her. There's still time. Don't let her go. It sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying to this church. He's saying, repent. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. There's still time. He's saying there's still hope. And this is is where we need to look into our own lives. Introspectively, we need to ask some tough questions about our love. When we catch ourselves drifting and when we see our love diminishing, we need to catch ourselves... And turn around at that moment. If that's today, then we turn around and we say, God, I I want to recommit my heart to you. I want to renew my commitment to you. I'd encourage you to take yourself back to when you first responded to Christ. If you remember just how enthusiastic and how passionate you were towards living your life to please Him. If you've noticed over time just this diminishing quality of your love, then... Why not just respond to him in a prayer today and just say, God, I want to renew, I want you to renew my love for you. Help me to love you so much greater than anything else. And we're going to, as we pray together, I'd encourage you to personalize a prayer as you speak to the Lord. Let's pray as the band comes forward. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for how how the scripture, Lord, just speaks to our own lives, Lord, speaks to us as a church, speaks to us individually, Lord, and. God, I pray that as, as we examine, as you examine our lives, Lord, and as you show us things, Lord, that we would respond quickly. Lord, if, if we need to repent and turn our hearts back towards you to make to make some tough decisions, to have a conversation, to, to get back on track, Lord, I pray that you would um, prompt us to do that this morning, Lord, as we... As we just sing these songs, Lord, I pray that as we're singing these songs back to You, Lord, it would be a time to just declare Your priority in our lives. That we love You more than anything else, Lord. Help us to, to um, help these songs to not just be words on a page or on a screen, but Lord, help these to be true of, of our heart. Lord, we love You, God. Help us to uh, to not forsake You, Lord, as we put other things up in our lives. Lord, help us to always keep things in the right order, Lord Jesus thank you for these things in your name we pray amen on the back of the white card the connection card um, if you take that out in just a few moments our ushers will be coming forward and when they do if you would take the um, white card out put that